Hi, this is Tim Winter. Welcome to What Would Dave Do? A digital conversation exploring the leadership experience. You can listen to it at timwinter.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. podcast exploring the leadership experience and uh, welcome everybody I appreciate you listening uh, on whatever format you listen to today my guest in the studio is Avery Roth she is CEO and coach uh, and this is one of these great stories this is somebody that I met through a connection and we scheduled a call and it was supposed to be 30 minutes, and I think it was two hours. And uh, we just realized that we had this amazing alignment, and I'm so impressed with her. Uh, one of my absolute favorite people on the planet, and uh, welcome to the show, Avery. So glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm so glad I'm here, too. Thanks for having me. So coach, our CEO coach, tell me about that. Like, what do you do? Well, I guess I would start by um, explaining what I think the role of a coach is. Yeah. And to me, it's um, being someone's partner and helping them get the best out of themselves. So the way I do that is by combining psychological growth, like facilitating psychological and emotional growth Mm -hmm. in whomever I'm coaching and strategic guidance toward whatever goals that person has. So in the case of a CEO, it's helping the CEO to overcome psychological, emotional blocks that are standing in his or her way of progress and also providing strategic guidance to hit those goals. Isn't that funny though? Because if you ask the average person on the street, they would think that CEOs have, have it all, that they mm-hmm. don't have any of those blockers because they're a CEO, right? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because in my experience, CEOs uh, are very, can be relatively imbalanced in a way because they're so dedicated generally dedicated to their work. Um, normally, you know, a bigger proportion of energy goes to the wor- their work than goes to other domains of their life, including their own relationship with themselves. And that creates psychological blocks to improvement. It's a so psycho- can I ask you a question? Is a psychological yeah. block the same as a blind spot? Are they different? Uh, I think they're, mm, well, I would say uh, a blind spot is an area where you don't, where you are lacking strength or expertise. Okay. So a blind spot could be, I don't know, let's say, um, relationships, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas a psychological block, the way I think of it is 
is like a level deeper and it's why do you have a a a challenge with relationships could it be because you're afraid of intimacy could it be because you're afraid of uh confrontation could it, you know uh could or being it be vulnerable because, yeah all of those things yep. so i think a blind spot is more of a what and a psychological block is more of a why ah great because you hear that all the time. You always hear, well, they have a blind spot to that, or that's a blind spot for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's interesting. I, yeah. I, I always have said, yeah, I have always said, look, I, you know, even Tiger Woods, who's arguably at one point the best golfer in the world, in the universe, you know, he moved his swing coach. He built a house on his property for his swing coach and had a swing coach. And you would ask, why does the best golfer in the world need a swing coach? Hmm. Well, well, that's because that's how he, in part, how he became the best golfer in the world, right? Absolutely. Right. You know, and, and it's that self-awareness and it's that willingness. And because I think a coach is looking at it differently than you're looking at it because of all those things you just mentioned. What do you mean by that? I think that the, I think that they have those blockers and they don't know it. And they're so dedicated to what they're doing. And they're so, so that for in this, in the sake of, for the sake of conversation with Tiger Woods, I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. he's so focused on the tour. He's so focused on all of these things that, that the the swing coach is focused on his swing. Yeah. Yeah. And is able to give him unfiltered feedback regarding that. And I think as a coach, when we're coaching executives, I think there's that opportunity to give them that because you're focused on them and not on all the other things that they're focused on. Yeah. I, I mean, I heard, I heard two things. One is um, essentially that a coach is a specialist and keeps the executive or, you know, the coachee focused on whatever it is that that person wants to achieve. And, um, and I think that's really important because, you know, everybody has way more on their plate than they can handle. And so sort of, it's almost like assigning uh, a trusted confidant uh, responsibility to keep you on track. Mm-hmm. Kind of like outsourcing your, it's not outsourcing your own discipline, but it's one way of delegating your your own discipline so that you can hit your own goals. And then I'm, I'm trying to remember, what was the second point you I- made? I think this that they're able to because they're, they're focused on so many other things. They're able to be myopically focused on this one area, and maybe yeah. that is maybe that is self. You know, because I think Tiger Woods wouldn't be able to have the the band to do everything and to focus. So if he hired a swing coach to help him f- focus on that area, who's watching it from a different point of view, right? Because sometimes we get so close to it. Yeah, that you can't see the forest for the trees. I think. Yeah. And I also think you were saying um, that coaches provide a safe space yep. for feedback. Um, and I think that is absolutely critical because, like you were saying, many people would think that a CEO has it all figured out. But generally speaking, they are, you know, the, the saying is it's lonely at the top. So, um, in theory, they should be able to discuss issues with 
their board. Um, you know, if it's a privately owned company with the investors, with their leadership team, um, but you know, there are conflicts of interest with each of those um, stakeholders. And then they, I guess, technically could take some of these issues home to their spouses or their friends. But so many of these people are slogging away and, you know, working just, they have an unbalanced uh, uh, approach to work and life that when they're not working, they don't want to be talking about work. So um, I think what's what's really special about the relationship that I build with CEOs is that they have a precious, completely safe, confidential place where they can firstly share what's going on in the business and have somebody understand it. Uh, so I spent a decade on Wall Street uh, and was an investor and am very comfortable with corporate strategy and corporate finance. And so anything that a CEO is grappling with is fair game. And so not only can I talk, you know, on par with them through challenges, but I can then help them address whatever emotions they have that come up around those challenges. And I can help them integrate the problem and come up with a solution and then implement that solution. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to overstate the value of a coach, even though I am a coach. <laughs> really. No, I think, but I think that's the magic, right? I mean, I think, yeah. that, I mean, I think I've experienced that with you in some of our conversations where you've asked questions around, you know, uh, because of your your involvement in the the organization that I'm involved with, and and you know it, and um, I think that uh, you know even th- I, I have received what you're speaking of, uh, and just in having not that you're my coach, but just that we're having those conversations, and I think you know you're probably one of those people who can't help yourself. Uh, that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of go into that mode. <laughs> I don't know that it's a mode, but right. it's 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 almost like I am I am fascinated by uh, human the human experience. And so when I meet somebody, I don't want to talk about superficial topics. I want to really understand them and understand their motives. And so I can often just ask powerful questions or a series, like it could even be, you know, two questions that really pierce the heart of what that person is, you know, noodling on. And that is, I think that's just part of me before I was a coach. It's just part of who I am. Um, like getting right, getting right to the center of things. And that's useful. Um, that's, you know, that that's obviously useful in my role as, as a coach. Um, but I bet it was yeah. super useful on Wall Street. Uh, just being able to get to the the point of the, not, not too much fluff. fluff. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, I'm actually thinking about a testimonial that one of my clients wrote for me. This was actually after wall street. I had a, um, a business called the startup consulting group. So we were a strategy consulting firm Uh helping startups to find product market fit and scale. And, one of our clients uh, wrote that I'm able to condense 
tons of information into concise, salient, really strategic insights. And I think that definitely was the case when I was on Wall Street, both as an advisor, because I could uh, express myself um, expediently and with precision, but also as an investor, um, because I was able to size up opportunities quickly. I was like a, a real quick study on it. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's just been a trait that's been really useful across my career. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Well, I certainly see it. So, so you do a lot of, I mean, obviously you're working with leaders. You, I know you have very strong opinions on leadership. I know that you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, something that it just interests you in the intricacies of it and the, in the changing in the landscape of it. Has mm-hmm. your philosophy about leadership changed over the years? Yes, definitely. Um, I would say even my understanding of what leadership is has changed a lot over the years. Um, I think part of that has to do with just aging and gaining more perspective. <laughs> and it's I don't both know. A, I don't know. A, a curse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. It yeah, is. Exactly. Uh, but I think part of it has to do with like the hero's journey that I've been on and the wisdom that I've gained from that journey. But what I would say is um, the first time I had, like I was thinking about what was the first time I ever had an experience with leadership or like the concept of leadership. And this is a funny story. When I was a junior in high school, I was recruited by the Naval Academy at Annapolis to um, potentially attend uh, and be a student mm-hmm. at the Naval Academy. And, uh, I lobbied my parents to let me go because really I just wanted to be with all the cute guys and miss school. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I got to spend like, I think it was five or six days down in Annapolis, Maryland. And basically we were in boot camp. And, you know, we had to be up at 5am. We had to do hospital corners on the bed. We had to wear our uniforms. We were put into regiments, battalions. We like, I was in the Delta dogs and our call was whenever they would (laughs) say our name, we all had to say that. And then they had us run on like the Nate, like around the Chesapeake Bay. And they had us doing push-ups on, you know, like the army Navy field. And, um, in the dining hall, they made us recite uh, I don't know. I see that's the whole point. I don't even know what they made us recite. And they made me do push-ups because I had no idea. Like I just I feel like I was so out of I was so out of my league because I wasn't really there to to I didn't I wasn't like truthfully, I, I didn't really care about attending. I just really wanted the experience. Right. And so I pretty much broke all the rules. <laughs> and uh and and I, I just had fun with it. And at the end of the experience, they had um, like the midshipmen who were um, sort of like leading us basically through that, through, through the boot camp, evaluate us and tell us whether they were going to recommend us um, for further, like for further assessment. Because then you have to, I guess, check in with your state senator. You need a recommendation from them. It's, it's quite a process. But anyway, I was actually recommended. I was so shocked because they were like, 
Avery, you know, you're, you could use some help in terms of your athletic like ability and you could use some help with, I don't know, A, B, and C, but we recognize that you have really powerful leadership skills. And so we want to recommend you. And I had never, I had never even thought about that before. Like, I think what really is just like a fun attitude and an authentic kind of, uh, you know, transparent, authentic approach um, naturally magnetizes people toward me. And so then because I am opinionated, if, if they, if they naturally gravitate to, you know, or agree with what my opinions are, they, they will, they'll rally around me. And I think that that was my first experience, like, um, not so much understanding what leadership is, but recognizing that quote unquote soft skills can be powerful. Um, but I, I still wasn't quite sure what, what, what leadership meant per se. Um, and then, you know, I spent an additional, I guess, 15 years in school or maybe 20 years in school and then a decade on Wall Street. And ultimately, I went through a big personal transformation in, in a lot of ways and uh, and went through a lot of hardship and came out the other side with an appreciation for uh the human experience and how humans uh, have have depth of feeling and uh, and potential and and how each each human has like a universe within them and that um, you know and I observed that many leaders in today's world, still take quite a militaristic hierarchical approach, which doesn't always apply, but it often implies that those at the top are better or no more than those at the bottom. And I think having gone through my own personal journey and really understanding how powerful each individual is, regardless of their experience, that really gave me a different perspective on leadership and how how acceptance it's sort of like an embracing of uh I, I mean I guess you could frame it as diversity but it's it really I mean ultimately it, it boils down to an appreciation for other humans which I call love it's it's it, it it's developing this this desire to honor other people and help them become their best. And so in a corporate context, I think when you focus on developing your people and helping them become their best, one of the products of that is excellence in, you know, whatever product you're manufacturing or service you're providing. Um, It's like they, they they go they naturally go together because yeah, people yeah. people are motivated they just they 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 expand and they they fly it is impossible it is absolutely impossible to create a quality product unless you have 
strong leadership within an organization. You will not create it. If you have a militaristic, and there's a great example in the world today, Russia. Russia has a very strong military. They're very militaristic. It's all the control is at the top. Nothing is at the bottom. The top is superior. The bottom, it could be anybody. You just got to go out there and fight. Mm-hmm. And they are incapable. Where if you look at across, now we do have some of that hierarchy in the United States military, mm-hmm. but there's empowerment at all levels. At their level, when they run into a blocker out in the battlefield, they don't know how to challenge. They don't know what to, they're waiting for direction from the top. And that is why, where, if you see it on a world stage, I'm not taking a political stand on this. I'm just looking at it. They're incapable of capable of creating quality. If you look at the way that their military is behaving, acting, and performing, it is not superior. It is not quality. And the reason that happens is because they don't empower throughout the entire organization. It is all hierarchy. And I would argue that there's companies here in America, I would argue that there's all kinds of, I can, I'm not going to mention them, but you can, they cannot create a quality product because of the, 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 I mean, I think Uber was a good example of Travis and Uber was incapable of, they created it. It was a great idea, but it was never, it got to a point where it wasn't a quality and it ended up imploding on itself and it had to have a complete rebirth to come out of where it was because that people will not work in that if they're not motivated, if they're not bought in, if they don't believe in it. I, I just, I, I think it's so important. I think it, and it also, your story can reminds me of, uh, I think that leadership chooses us. Yes. And I think you got that exact. You were very fortunate. You got that when you were young. Leadership mm-hmm. chose you as a junior in high school. And then you were put into this situation and it kind of came out. Of, and, and that's not to say that you can't develop leadership skills and stuff, but I do believe leadership chooses us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Um, that was a lot. The, Sorry. No, no, no. It was super. <laughs> I, I love where you're going with this. And I think um, in, in a military uh, uh, theater, what the, I guess they would call theater, you know, stage on the stage. Um, when you have a very hierarchical uh, uh, org structure, when problems arise, the lower downs require time to kind of spiral up to the higher ups to get get orders, and then those orders have to come down again, right? So that takes time. And, um, and it promotes a dependence on the higher ups. Whereas when, you know, when the lower downs are, for lack of a better word, are trusted or entrusted with uh, decision-making power, like on, uh, you know, uh, in the moment, then you save time, you build confidence among, among those, you know, like the, you know, the wider, the wider team, because they intrinsically feel that their leaders have confidence in them and trust them. And so, uh, you know, let's say the soldiers further down the ranks will, it's like almost positive psychology. They, they'll, they, they, their understanding that they are trusted will build confidence 
in themselves that then creates expediency, it creates teamwork, it creates, you know, thinking on your feet. And that's where innovation comes from. And that's where interesting tactics come from that can change the course, you know, of a battle or a war, that kind of thing. So... Yeah, you must empower people and people have to have the confidence and the and the courage and they will have the confidence and they will, if they feel empowered to raise their hand and say, there's a problem. I mean, I, yeah. I think there was a, like the CEO of Mercedes Benz, there's a story and I'm probably going to be wrong on most of the facts of this, but the, the, the general idea of it. And he couldn't figure out why Tesla could make a, a, a change to their product line within days where it would literally take Mercedes Benz years. Yeah. And what they realized was nobody on the floor was empowered and yeah. it had to go through so many layers of bureaucracy and leadership, you know, yeah. vice president roles that they, it just took a long time to make a decision where Tesla and the, what, what Elon Musk was doing at Tesla was if you have a better idea, you better bring it up. And then people yeah. were empowered to do that. And then the change would happen. Yeah. I think also um, in that particular example, uh, I think there is, you could, you could call it cultural. There's a cultural difference in that Mercedes-Benz is a super old company that's always, in my understanding, been focused on quality. And quality generally takes time. Um, and, you know, Germany is an older country than mm -hmm. the U.S. And, uh, and it's, it's steeped in tradition. And so there's kind of like this whole catalog of experience that they have that they can refer to that grounds them in more process, I, I would say. But then in the U.S., you know, we have a culture built on the backs of entrepreneurs and, uh, and you know, there's this concept. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, The Lean Startup mm. by Eric Reese, but basically um, his, his thesis or his, it's, it's his philosophy, which a lot of the startup world, um, embraces is that, um, experimentation is the key to, uh, success for a startup because it allows you to fail fast. You can set up these little experiments and, um, and because the experiments are quite small, you, you're not taking a huge risk with the business. And you get to test and see what works. And so um, the it's like the the way a company is like the org structure uh, mirrors that very um, responsive and like real time kind of philosophy. Uh, and and I think um, that's what allows for expediency, you know, quickly being able to quickly scale um, and deliver a product to the market that the market really wants. So that's like the hockey curve that, yep. excuse me, the hockey stick that, um, that startups refer to. But so anyway. But it requires that leadership. It requires that realization. It requires that, you know, willingness to empower people throughout the organizations. I mean, I've always believed in creating leaders at every level of your organization. Yeah. I don't, I don't want leaders to set the top. I want leaders yeah. everywhere. I can't agree more. I think, um, you know, they say that, um, and I agree with this, uh, strong leaders, they try to hire people who are smarter than them <laughs> and delegate 
delegate to them and just sort of like manage them, like, like not so much manage, but help them around the edges where they need help. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the challenge is um, that a lot of leaders, like most humans, have egos. And the ego is really the part of us that is fearful. And, mm. uh, you know, those who have risen, many of those who have risen to the top of an organization did so by like micromanaging and really almost in an OCD controlling all of like the inputs and outputs of their work life. Right. And so when they get to the CEO role, actually, it's like, what got you here won't get you there because the CEO's job is not to produce. The CEO's job is to, is like to be the conductor. You're not playing an instrument anymore. You're just standing at the front and kind of like inspiring and conducting. And But isn't um, it amazing how many, <laughs> once they become the conductor, they get the, 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 they don't want it because <laughs> they want to be producers. Yes. 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 It's, I mean, that is um, a really classic uh, hurdle for folks who um, are approaching the CEO suite yep. um, or want to. I think um, in finance, at least in Wall Street, it was really, really common for those people like who were producing the most to get promoted. And so... Uh, you know, eventually traders and whatnot would rise to the top of an organization and they don't want to be giving performance reviews and, you know, sitting in executive meetings all day. They want to be trading. So um, that, you know, just that example in and of itself is, it, I think, demonstrates how overemphasis of perform. I mean, obviously performance is, is, is super important. Like that goes without saying, but when you focus, when a company focuses on performance without like uh, engaging the, all the people so that it's a group, like it's, it's a group effort, so to speak, then you, and you can end up disenfranchising so much of your workforce because the people who end up in leadership roles just don't have any idea how to manage. Oftentimes they're like super low in terms of EQ. And sometimes they can even be immoral because if money is the most important thing to them, then they can sacrifice other, you know, other elements in their decision-making. Yeah. Like I used to work at Lehman Brothers and that's a great example of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, obviously I, I, I have an interesting philosophy though. I don't believe that, you know, there's a saying that, um, uh, money is a root of all evil or, is, mm -hmm. you know, money corrupts. Mm -hmm. I think wealth and money reveal. Hmm. And I actually think it, I think if you're that kind of a person, whether you're poor, whether you're, but I think money reveals people. I, I think that, you know, I've seen people have acquired great wealth and they've, uh, they've done amazing, wonderful things with that. And I've seen people who have acquired great wealth who believed it gave them an opportunity to, color outside the lines. And mm. I think that it reveals more than it corrupts. I don't think it's the money. I think it's the person. It, mm. mm -hmm. it's just, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I, I like, I like that idea. And I think, um, I mean, 
I am a proponent of sort of energetics and energetic philosophy. And my, my take is that money is sort of like a neutral and it's like a medium and uh, it can take on a positive like charge and it can take on a negative charge. And, uh, and so it, it, the outcome really depends on your approach to it. And since as humans, we have consciousness, which basically is like the ability to witness ourselves, then we can just make that decision to charge it positively. Like, like, you know, we decide to have a positive relationship with money. And then as a result, we can use it for the greater good. Yeah. I just always thought the saying, you know, oh, money corrupts. That's kind of a hall pass. You, yeah, you're 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 an adult. You 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 can make good decisions. Let's not blame the money. Um, yeah. You know, let's yeah. um, maybe what's in your heart. Maybe you need to look into that. Yes. Uh, what, yeah. what, like what what does that? I, I I've seen people. I've seen it on both sides of it. I just I just believe that it reveals. And I've seen people with great wealth do some amazing things that would yeah. you know, and make a difference in the world. And I've seen people with great wealth who have done. Um, some horrible things. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just always thought it was a hall pass. So, Hey, so how's the book coming or talk to me about realize. Cause I mm. want to, I really want to share that with my audience. Cause I, it really, um, when you and I talked about it, I think on one of our first conversations, I was, uh, you know, I was really taken back by it and it really aligned with, uh, you know, some of my beliefs. Well, thank you for, for asking and, and, uh, sharing, you know, wanting to share with your audience, Tim, I created a framework. It's an acronym realize, and it is a model that facilitates transformation. So pretty much anything you apply it to, whether you apply it to an individual that wants to transform or a group that wants to transform or, um, a problem that needs to be transformed or an organization, um, it can be used in all of those situations. And so the acronym, as I said, is REALIZE, spelled with an S. And it's R for recognize, which is accurately diagnosing what the problem at hand is. So oftentimes... Uh, folks can experience symptoms. Like if you go to the doctor, you bring the doctor your symptoms and then you're able to figure out what, you know, what the root cause is or like what the diagnosis is. So that's R is getting to the, to the heart of, you know, what the, what the problem really is that you're trying to solve. E is ego. And so that is, um, you know, it's a process of establishing where the problem came from, um, like the genesis of the problem yeah. and how different stakeholders um, are contributing to that problem. Um, and then A is abundance, which is essentially it's the opposite of the ego. So if you're, if E is looking at the blocks, then A is looking at the possibilities. So it's like the possibility mindset. Mm. What could this 
like how how could this scenario change and what would the best out- outcome potentially be and what do we need to do to achieve that so those first three letters are kind of like mindset oriented kind of getting into the right mindset and then l is listen so mm. um, with an individual it's tapping into your body to get access to your intuition um, around what you need. And we can go more into that, but I- um, And trusting, right? And trusting the intuition. Yes, trusting the intuition. That can take a lot, that can take time. Um, Especially because a lot of people um, and leaders in particular really repress their emotions so they can focus on delivering outcomes and you know the um, the emotions are what live in our body like that's that's just like when we drop into our body through mindfulness um, practices meditation practices what we're doing is we're creating a stage where we can observe our emotions but some some people aren't even in touch with their emotions so it's like an empty stage for a while and then some actors will eventually come out on the stage <laughs> that we don't like, right? right? These emotions. And how are we going to trust them if we don't like them? Like that could take a really long time too, right? But then eventually you you start to understand them. You start to understand how how they work. And you start to have compassion for for yourself despite feeling those feelings. And that is when change can happen. Absolutely. I love so that. that's L. L. I mean, that's L from a, as it relates to an individual, like an individual would drop into their body to kind of like get access to their intuition. Um, um, as it relates to an organization, um, it's 360 listening. It's, it, and again, it sort of depends on the mandate, right? But it's listening to your employees, listening to your customers, listening to uh, your superiors and those who report to you, listening to yourself, listening to the board, like listening to the wider world and sustainability goals and all of these things. And and listening those- to understand. I mean, listening to so many, you know, it's it's that need to listen to, to understand. So many people listen to respond. Yes. That's a great point. And it, that's I, a great point. It, it, it's something I always really focus on with people are you listening to it looks like you're listening to respond to me instead of listening to understand what i'm saying um because you know we're, we're all moving so fast i love that one i love the li- i you know i never thought about it about listening to your intuition listening internally i i immediately went to the more tactical but i really love mm. that i really love that about you know it's kind of the slowing down so you can speed up Yes. And that's actually um, part of what I teach is um, slow is fast. Right. Because they, this is, there's this expression, when you're climbing a ladder, make sure it's leaning against the right wall. So you could be climbing a ladder as fast as you want, but if it's not taking you where you want to go, right. then it doesn't matter how fast you're going. Like slow down and make sure your ladder is leaning against the right wall. <laughs> what a great ex- I'm writing that one down. I like that one. Yeah. All yeah. right. Make sure it's a, make sure your ladder is against the right wall. Mm-hmm. 
All right. That was worth the price of admission. (laughs) (laughs) I can't take credit for it because I learned, I can't remember where I learned it, but yeah. Well, you shared it. It is. It's great. Yeah. And I, I like in my work with CEOs, it's, it's consistently amazing how, and through no fault of their own, it's just through cultural like habit, essentially, most CEOs need to move their ladder to a different wall. They realize that what they're trying to achieve is like too small or it's like not comprehensive enough. It doesn't take into consideration um, like the bigger picture Yeah, in a way. Uh, so, so yeah, that's imperative. The listening and also what you said about listening to understand versus respond to me, I think about it like energetic flow. So is it, is it like, are you listening to embrace the incoming data or are you listening to send out outgoing data? And for the purposes of the realized framework, um, L is a data collection, uh, activity. So really what you're doing is you're pulling in different data points from different sources so that you can move to I, which is uh, intention. Mm. So it's only after you've listened comprehensively that you can bring that, like analyze all the data, put it together and create an intention for the goal that you want to go after. Yeah. Intention. I love that. So it's, it is very, um, the listening definitely is, it's like, um, it's an inbound, it, it has an inbound energy, like you said. Huh? Yeah. So it's- yeah, I is intentions. That's basically mapping out what your goals are and how you're going to get there. And then S is surrender, which is sort of, that's the letter that most people kind of sigh at when they hear me say it. <laughs> Uh, and oh, I want to explore that because is that like yeah. surrender to surrender to yourself, surrender to the team, n- uh, recognizing you can't do it all, uh, that it is going to take a, you know, that it's bigger than you and that you're going to have to find ways to, is, am I right there or am I wrong? Yes, ah. you are right. And, and I think it's, I don't know that there's one definition really. Sure. It's kind of like, um, you know, when you learn, like when you're exposed to a new paradigm, you don't experience the learning as linear. It kind of like percolates to the different parts of you as you as your brain kind of explores the info. Mm-hmm. I think that's what surrender is. Because when you introduce or when I introduce that that concept, essentially it is like in in, in, in a sentence, it means letting go of outcomes. So um that that uh mechanism the letting go mechanism can be applied in in all areas of life and business um and and it's sort of like the more you ponder it the more uh um what's the word i'm looking for domains that you realize it's relevant um and so in the context of business, philosophically, it's um, it's creating goals and creating systems to make sure that we can stay on track 
but not micromanaging so much that we force solutions that aren't right. Like you don't want to put a square peg into a round hole just because you're trying to like hit a target on a certain timeline. You want to make sure that it's almost like imagine your hand is clenched into a fist or your hand is open and, you know, ready to receive something. If your hand is clenched and you're really, you know, controlling and holding the reins and everything, yeah, you can determine the outcome, but um, that out, you might actually end up with an outcome that ha- having done all that work, you still might end up with an outcome that isn't quite right. Whereas if you can keep your hands open and, 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 um, and I'll go into in, in, more into that in a second, but if you can keep your hands open, um, and your mind open to what solutions potentially could come to you, then that's like, that's when the magic happens. That's when it, it's sort of like a growth orientation. Um, you, you open yourself and your organization up to possibilities that you might not have imagined, but could be like better than your wildest dreams. Yeah. I'm like, I'm having this mind explosion. Um, <laughs> my hands are over my head and I'm exploding oh, uh, because I'm thinking just uh, even in terms of life, and in terms of the world and how many yeah. people walk around with their arms clenched right and they're yeah. Yeah, and they don't smile and and if you don't open yourself up to the possibilities now it's great in business and what you've yeah. talked about for business in the context of business you're so spot on but just even going a little bit bigger into the universe and into the world and you see people who just are are so open and and you see the reward that they get in, in so many different ways. And I've just seen so many people who sit in meetings with their arms crossed. And, and what, all you're saying is, all you're saying is, you know, I'm not open to anything. <laughs> I have my yes. ideas. I have my opinions. And, and here we go. And then guess what happens? What do you think happens? What do you think the outcomes are for those people? Uh, I mean, I think, I think low performance, uh, probably lack of job satisfaction, probably. Well, essentially they get. Go ahead. Low engagement. Well, I was going to say they get what they expect. Oh, yeah. It's like, if you, if, if you're going, I mean, that's sort of the power of positive psychology, which is Martin Seligman. Um, it's like, if you. I don't know if there's like this NBA case study about, I don't know if it's the red Toyota or whatever. Have you, I don't know if you've heard about that. Oh, no, I I have, I couldn't recite it, but I have heard about it. Yeah. So essentially it's this idea that if you're in the market to buy a red Toyota, then suddenly you'll see red Toyotas everywhere. Oh yes, yes, yes. And it's not that there are more, it's just that your brain is like filtering uh, it's, it's filtering for the, like the factor that you're, that you're looking for, if that makes sense. It's almost like you're, you're setting the algorithm to look for that. It always happens when you buy a new car and you go, Oh, you buy the car and you're like, Oh no, I've never seen this. And then as soon as you buy it, you see them everywhere. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you're like, Oh, this isn't that unusual. That's not this special of a car. They're everywhere. I'm not that special. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. 
<laughs> They're everywhere. Yeah. Everybody drives a Jeep. Nah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've been noticing pickup trucks everywhere. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, oh, tell me, yeah. you drive. Tell me, Avery, you drive a truck. I I'm in the market to uh, buy a car, and I've been renting a lot of trucks, and I just freaking love them. <laughs> and I listen to country music. Oh, there you and, go. Yes. <laughs> hey. Man, go with it. I, I tell well, you what. All I need is the cowboy hat. But, uh, yeah. Trucks are not cheap, man. They are not cheap. That really surprised me. R right? Yes. Because, I mean, I grew up in the city. I don't know about you. Did you grow up in a city? No, I grew up on property. That's why I okay. hate the That's why I love the city so much and hate the country. Because I, oh. I grew up. We never had trick-or-treaters because we lived too far out oh. in the middle of nowhere. We used to buy Halloween candy every year, but nobody had ever come. You'd eat it yourself. Yeah, we would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so um, what were we saying? Oh, yes. The um, the positive. Yeah, the about trucks. No, you were saying. Clench that... their hands. Yeah, but I was, I was referring to the people who clench their hands. Yeah. And like, what do you think they get? They get what they expect. Because if you, I was sort of mentioning this orientation to like, your brain is kind of like, it's essentially like an algorithm that you can set to find whatever you want. That's, um, that's really what neuroplasticity is, but, it, um, in some ways, but. So if you say um, you want happiness and you, and you have happiness and you, 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 you look for happiness, if you want to be yeah. miserable, if you want to be, then you find that too. There's plenty it's of not it. that you want. It's not that you necessarily want to be miserable. Oh, it's just that if you're not a lot of people who haven't um, worked on themselves or kind of cast the flashlight inward to understand, mm. become more aware of of like their inner operations, they just might be miserable because their life has hardened them into believing that, you know, it that life sucks. But um, if they were to to do, you know, some of this inner work, they would realize that as as a as a conscious human we like the one like the only thing we really have control of is how we respond to things is our it's that's our choice so if we decide we want to respond positively and if you think positively we can if we decide that we want to you know i mean not that anybody would decide to to you know react to things negatively but typically what happens is once our eyes open to the fact that we have control over our experience, we're able to like see in action all the ways that we're kind of creating negativity in our life. And then we realize we can just, um, we can literally change the outcomes by training our brain to think positively. So one way, for example, I do this and I, I also have my clients do it is I have a gratitude journal. So at the end of every day, before I go to bed, I write three things I'm grateful for from that day. And they can be massive. They can be tiny. Um, and what, what that does is it, it builds neural pathways that reinforce the idea that life is good and there's abundance in your life. And the more you do it, it's like you, your default starts to move to expecting positive things. And just like the red Toyota, if you start expecting positive things, then positive things occur. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's I, 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 I absolutely. I'm so glad we dug into that because I, I think that's so important 
And I think sometimes we don't realize our, we don't realize that we have a lot. Realize? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> hey. Hey. We, yeah. Well, look <laughs> at that. Sorry. Keep going. No, it's what I was a great commercial. <laughs> you know, we just don't really, we just don't realize that we have more control or more, more authority over ourselves. And when we choose, our, right? Like we choose our attitude. Yes. If we're aware of it, if we're open to it and if we're aware to it and we're, we're, we're open to ourselves and how we're feeling, yeah. and why we're feeling. Yes. And honestly, a lot of people just haven't been introduced to the concept. It's not like there's anything wrong with them. We're just all sort of on our different timelines. And when it, when, when our eyes open in that way, like you, you, you can't go back. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there are so many times in my, and so many things that have happened in my life. I just like, I could never go back to, you know, my eyes have been open to so many things. I just could never go back. Yeah. It, it is who I, it is who I am. And why do you like, what does that mean to you? Um, you, you know, I, I, I think it's being more intentional. I think it's, uh, being more honest with myself. I think it's yeah. being more aware. I, I think is what it means to me. I mean, I, I, a real quick story. I remember a time when I was newly promoted to chief operating officer and, um, we, uh, I had one of my people had been promoted under me and he came into a big meeting and he had made the decision, which was his decision, but he made the decision to, uh, and this is going to date me crazy, but made the decision <laughs> to, uh, to give all of our district managers laptops. And we had invested quite a bit of money in creating a store communication center that was tied to our POS. So a DM could go in and, and get their numbers or communicate via the POS. And the idea around it was keep them at the front of the store, not in the back in the office. Uh -huh. And, um, but it wasn't a great and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't work in their hotel rooms or they couldn't work. For, and, and John was absolutely spot on, right? We needed to move into that direction. Um, but I felt very threatened. I felt very, um, uh, I, oh, I, all the horrible feelings came up. And why is that? Um, I think I felt threatened because. I had given him the, uh, he had taken, essentially had taken my whole job and oh. right. So now he's doing these bold things. And why didn't I think of that? And well, yeah, all of those things. And, um, I, you know, I, and I remember my assistant after the meeting was like, what the hell's wrong with you? And I said, man, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. I, I like, you know, and, and it's a becoming aware and I would, and I've seen managers who operate that way. And I would just never want to go back to that now that I've, I've, I've seen it. And just having that really honest candor with yourself and awareness, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Things went bad. Okay. I'm not going to dwell on it, but I'm going to mm -hmm. recognize that it's bad. I'm not going to sit here and lie to myself about it. I'm going to recognize it's mm -hmm. bad and I'm going to look for ways to do it better next time. And I tell yeah, you, that candor that's... is hard for a lot of people. Yes. Because, um, well, I don't know if you're referring to candor with oneself or with others in particular. With oneself. with oneself. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you're when you're candid with yourself, you're admitting, you're like choosing to see the beast. You're like admitting there is a beast and you're looking at it. 
And it takes guts to admit that, you know, there's negative, you know, elements, because like I was saying before, we're, we're all human. We all have egos and our egos are fearful. And if we look at, you know, parts of us that we don't like, or that we think are overwhelming, or, you know, we might, we might feel overwhelmed. We might feel like we'll never escape from that. Well, we might feel like we're not worthy. We might, you know, usually whatever it is that we're fearing is not as big as the fear itself. That's just obviously why, um, what's the saying? Um, uh, I'm blanking on the saying, but, but yeah, anyway, um, me too. Yeah. I think that, um, uh, uh, sorry, I just blanked. Remind me where we are. We're we're talking about, uh, (laughs) the fear. Oh no, it's good. The fear. And when we're, uh, uh, the, the communication, uh, when we're recognizing that there's things go bad that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, oh, you're saying candor. Yeah. And being candor with yourself and with others. Yeah. So, so basically when you're honest with yourself, it, in order to be honest with yourself, you have to be brave because it requires facing hard truths. Yep. And many people do not have that strength and it's not their fault. It may just be that they have never, they may never have even been introduced to the concept that like there's more beneath the surface, you know, like some people have more familiar familiarity with this stuff than others. But, um, yeah, so, so oftentimes, I mean, if we're talking about leaders, I mean, this really applies to anybody, but usually like one of the mechanisms we use as humans to cope and to survive is by repressing what is painful. So we banish it like a way to like a far off kingdom in our subconscious and we pretend it doesn't exist. And so if people like, I don't know, reflect to us that we are, I don't know, um, say you're, uh, you're a little bit brusque, right? If people give you feedback that you're brusque and it kind of like irks you to, to, to hear it. And you, you sort of like, ugh, get annoyed when you hear it. That's probably like if you get annoyed, it's probably because it's true. <laughs> and actually, you've just banished that truth about yourself way into your subconscious because it's too hard for you to admit it to yourself. And that's why, um, that's why a, p- a lot of people just they don't want to feel emotion. They're maybe afraid of it. They suppress a lot of stuff. They don't. Wa- they don't like can. They don't want to be candid with themselves. They. They're maybe afraid of candor from others. They don't, they don't like that kind of honest discussion can be really scary for them. And I think like, actually this really ties in nicely to my philosophy about leadership and, and what I think we need, which is that I think hum, the, like the human race or like human beings have an opportunity to grow materially by op- having their eyes opened, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then doing things differently. And so the way we get that to happen is by creating a safe and loving environment for those people to begin 
gathering the courage to look at the hard stuff, open their eyes, and then evolve. It's kind of like, imagine uh, when we realized that the world was round versus flat, right? Right. Like, it's at the moment, we're sort of living in a world where, I don't know, 10 to 15% of the people know that the world is round and they can look at others who think the world is flat and say, you know, like, why don't they see the world is round? Like, right. this this is giving us so much opportunity. We can actually like fly around it or we can circumnavigate and get exactly back to where we were and whatever, all these other things that we, you know, all the other uh, um benefit uh, things that we dis- discoveries all the other Discover. discoveries that we made on the back of that yeah exactly um but the other i don't know 80 or 85 percent of human beings just don't like they don't know what they don't know so i think that there's an opportunity for empowering that other 85 percent to realize there's like so much more for them they, they don't have to live with like their fists clenched um, they can open their hands and just have a much well that can- like much much more connection and and all and that connection and that sense of love and that sense of community and all of that stuff is what a fuels self-actualization and like improvements across you know a- across mankind but it's also what fuels corporate like performance as well yeah, I think, you know, that that speaks so dovetails so nicely to, you know, uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And there's so many people who never get off the first rung. It's yes. just survival, right? It's survival, it's survival, okay. survival, survival. They never get to, heaven forbid, they ever get to enlightenment. But they yeah. they just live in that world where they're not, they're, they can't even grow intellectually or have appreciation of art and appreciation of, you know, the round earth. I mean, yeah. they, they because they're just so in that, you know, I got to get food. I got to, you know, just that I shelter. This is where, and even in today's world, we have, I, I would argue that a lot of the population lives there and, and because yeah. they're not exposed to it, they're, they're not exposed to it. And I think there's a, a need and uprise in this or in this country or in this world for, well, other parts of the world have it, but certainly in this country to teach that, to, to grow people who in, in schools who are empowered, who, yes. who can grow to have an appreciation of those. Hey, am I right with the E is E energy? Ooh, I like that, but it's actually evolved. Evolved. Now that's yeah. That's much more highbrow. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's much. Well, that's much more. I like. I like evolve better. So does. So walk me through evolve. Like, I like energy too. I do. But um, yeah. I mean, it is all about energy. It's a lot. Not all about it, but you know, there is an important, important. Uh, it's an important theme for sure. But um, evolve is um. Well, it's evolve and it's also execute. So uh, for a person, I think about it as evolve. For an organization, I think about it as execute. But really, it's taking the steps we need to take um, to deliver. So taking action, really. And, um, and so that requires... Um, like the ability to uh, 
uh, be honest with yourself about like what your metrics are and if you're hitting them yep. from a from a person from a personal perspective. Like it's defining what does success look like and how can I measure and make sure that I'm on the right track and I'm moving toward my goal. Um, and for organizations, it's the same thing. It's it's setting um, setting metrics and and um, only setting metrics is not going to empower an organization to achieve its goals. You also have to create processes um, that empower people, empower employees to uh, to work in a way that, like, like I was saying, in a way that is open-handed versus closed, closed-fisted. You know, like sometimes that requires more flexibility in an organization. Sometimes it requires um, more open communication. Like it could require um, more dialogue, more different kinds of meetings, like different kinds of cadences. Um, in today's day and age, it could require like a different mix of hybrid working or, you know, there's so many different ways you can create a system that will support you in achieving your goals. But that's what E is all about. It's, it's the creation of a system that, and it, that works, that works for, you know, for you or the organization. Um, so that so that you can you can grow and um, and evolve and so once you've um, completed one cycle you have realized transformation and and so when you implement this in an organization or when you talk to is it starting with the is it starting with the CEO suite is it ta- is it the, the CEO team and then going through this and then they develop kind of a a plan and then it goes through the organization as the, as this is our framework that we're realizing this is this is this how how what are the mechanics of it yeah it's a really great question because um in my experience, uh, I you know I appreciate all the efforts that that are um, being that are being made um, across organizations. For example, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, different uh, you know um, efforts uh, across like larger bases of people. But ultimately, I think that those efforts won't take off or have the impact they could have if leadership doesn't buy in. And not only does leadership have to buy in, but leadership has to be enthusiastic. And so again, while I like, I applaud a lot of these, I wouldn't say grassroots, but like a bit more like lateral efforts. um, My view is that change happens at the very top of CEOs. And that is why I focus on CEOs Yep. because I believe that by working with a CEO to open his or her eyes, you know, like we were just saying, creates just a massive ripple effect and, uh, you know, through the company, obviously, but through the world. Um, but specifically um, addressing your question Yes, I start with the CEOs because, um, you know, this work is not easy work. And especially if you're doing it um, in a coaching container, a one-on-one coaching container, then there's, you know, uh, there's an investigation of um, 
feelings, like your behaviors, your patterns, what, you know, what's blocking you. Um, and there's a learning process where the CEO, uh, receives information through readings and, um, different materials to understand him or herself. So, um, I teach the three A's of change, awareness, acceptance, and action. Mm. So by providing awareness of like what is like the dynamic within that CEO's brain, that CEO then all of a sudden, like they, they have a map that they didn't have before. And then over the course of time in our coaching, we work together so they can start to accept themselves despite those issues, whatever issues are there. And then they're able to take action to change their habits, change the outcomes. So, um, have you ever had a CEO who said who just wasn't going to change? No, no, oh, no, because I think if they would have filtered themselves out before the work had gotten uh, away, uh, yeah. So once they're to this, and they're yes, okay, they've they've done a little bit of work pre. And they know that they need this. Okay, that makes sense. So, or they've done a little bit of work pre, or in our com- in our initial conversations, sure. they their eyes open, and they're like, "Oh God, this sucks," but I, I think I need it. <laughs> right. You know. Well, and then well, the thing is, you've gotta you've got to not only, as I say, um, get the buy in at the top, but you need the enthusiasm. So as that individual, as the CEO realizes the power of, well, their own power, right? Um, um, They, and the power of the realized framework, they then want to like espouse it. They want to use, they want to use that verbiage throughout their organization. So they have a common language. And so everybody can be on the same page and Everybody can open up and everybody can be more candid and, you know, um, change can happen more rapidly and innovation, more innovation can happen and more honesty can happen. And there's like, you know, failure can be reframed as learning and, you know, uh, you know, bonds grow and, and like intimacy among, you know, uh, like, you know, type friendship type intimacy will, will grow among the humans that occupy that that organization. And like, it becomes, it, it, I don't want to say that the CEO becomes an evangelist, but it's like, once you realize how, that you can impact the world, like in such a positive way, and, and you know it because you, you've seen yourself change, like you just want to bring it to other people. Right. And you're, and you see your organization, the responsibility that you have, and you are, you know, you've been pushing a worm up a hill for so long. Yes. <laughs> And now you don't have to. Right. It, right. It's it's so powerful and it's so fun. And when you get that breakthrough, it is it, yeah. it's 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 amazing. And when you see a it's company everything. go through that trans that that transformation or or that, it's really exciting. Yeah. Uh, that is so so okay. So give me R again, because I I R is recognize. recognize then you have ego, abundance, yep. listen, intention, surrender, and evolve slash execute. Yep. Well, that is pretty f- 
freaking cool. But that's right. No, I, you know, we talked about it and I, I mean, it really resonated with, with me because in the way that you describe all of the components of it, and I think any CEO who gets a chance to work with you is, is very lucky and their, oh. and their organization's probably luckier. Um, be, because you. people like to work in that environment, right? People love to work in that. People want to work in a, in the, in my, we call it the, the heroic environment. People want to work in a heroic environment. Where they I feel valued that. and where they feel they feel valued and appreciated, and, and energized. Yes, and they yeah. and they wake up every morning. I'm convinced, absolutely convinced. Nobody wakes up in the morning says, "I want to do a shitty job," or "I want to <laughs> screw over my company." I think it's right. sometimes the environment we create create these or the policies that we create. Yeah, I won't even get don't even get me started on bereavement policies, but. You know, that's oh. the first thing I do when I go into a company. I want to see their bereavement policy. And yeah. when it's spelled out and, you know, you're given days based on the relationship of the deceased, uh, I'm done. Like, no, you have a horrible culture. If 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 you let this pass, because it's just, it's, it's kind of like in the old days, in my retail days, I used to go in and use, I wanted to see the bathroom in every single store Ooh, that I went I into. I love that. Because yeah. if they had a clean bathroom, I didn't really have to look much further. If they had a dirty bathroom, there were other problems in the store. Yeah. And I just knew that. And and I knew that because I, I, I'd i heard Ed Koch one time tell a story about, they asked why the success of McDonald's. And he said, oh, it's easy. It's clean food or clean bathrooms. I love and that. they said, no, what about the food? He goes, ah, oh, the food's okay. But it really was clean bathrooms. And we recognized as they were opening up the interstates, we had these restaurants, people needed to use the bathroom. Yeah. And it, they knew McDonald's and they even designed their stores where they had that side door where you didn't have to go by the front counter to use the restroom. Mm. And they did that purposefully because people always got a Coke or they bought it or got ice cream. They did, they would, people, oh, well, we're stopping. We might as well get something. Right. And they knew the bathrooms were going to be clean. Starbucks should do that. Yeah. Starbucks should do that. They really need to do that. <laughs> they, they really, but, but, you know, you think about it when that was all happening, you know, the old dirty gas station bathroom, we all have, Ugh. we've all experienced yeah. it. And McDonald's really, really looked at that. And so when I would go in and it was true, if my, in my retail career, if the bathrooms in the stores were clean, I didn't have to look much farther. I had, a, I had a regional manager one time pull me aside and goes, do you have a bladder problem? I said, you know, every store we go into. <laughs> I said, no, let me give you a method to my madness. Same thing when I interview people for a job, I always walk them out to their car because I want to see if they have a clean car because if they have a clean car, they'll probably have a clean, they'll run clean stores. That is such a great, like covert tactic. And I had one girl stop me one time and I, I gave her bonus points because she recognized it because you're walking me out to my car to see if it's clean. I'm just going to tell wow. you, I have four kids and it's filthy. <laughs> And I was going to have it washed before. And I, and I went, oh, it's okay. I love the self-awareness. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think, that, you know, to your very original point, we're all people. And business would be really easy if it wasn't for these damn people. Um, and I think, you know, I've been very fortunate. I think leadership chose me. I love people. I love to see people be successful. I get great energy from people. And so for me, it was always very easy. Um, and I, I love to see, I love to see what 
amazing inspired people can create because it's way beyond what my imagination can come up with. Mm. And I, I think this is a really great segue because when I was thinking about our discussion today, I was reflecting on the fact that I think you're an amazing leader and yeah. And I was, um, I was, I was pondering leaders that I admire and I was having a really hard time of thinking of anybody and you came into my mind. And I think one of the reasons, if not the main reason is because in one of our maybe last conversations, we talked about leading with love and, um, and I, re- I was remembering you, you coined this idea of like, I love you professionally, yeah. <laughs> like telling people you love them. Professionally. Hashtag. I love you professionally. Hashtag. I love you professionally. Exactly. And I think that is, it just says everything. Like it just comes off you. It's like the rays of the sun just radiate, uh-huh. like it radiates off you. And I think that. Um, I think, you know, you even use the word just in, just what you're saying before you use the word love. Like you actually, the words you use are, are steeped in feeling. And, and I think it's really hard to deny the power of that on people and winning people's hearts. Um, of course you also need to have uh, intellectual firepower and all these other attributes to succeed as a leader. But I just think, like you said, leadership maybe chose you is just, it's like, I think you were born with it. But I also wanted to mention that I think it's so beautiful that you created this podcast in honor of Dave. Um, and I think that is an act of leadership as well, because you, in doing so, my read on it, and I hope it's okay for me to say this, and is, you know, you're, you're essentially alchemizing a really painful, dark experience into light, like into, um, you know, a a way for people to learn and evolve and, and expand their, their life experience, um, through this podcast. And I think like that in and of itself is such, it's such a courageous act and it's such a, to me, it it really defines a leader. And so I I really admire you. Well, I am not good at taking compliments, but I've been working on it. So I'm going to say thank you very much. Um, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you for, for recognizing the work of the, of the podcast. It, it, it did. It it was the intention. Uh, It was intention to, to keep Dave's energy and his what he offered the world, which was amazing, um, in some small way, and bringing people like you into that circle were, were very important to me. Um, so I, I really, I, a, I just, you know, uh, I love you professionally, but I also love you, um, and I love you professionally too, and I love you. And I just hope, you know, I just think that. And I and I really really appreciate you recognizing those two things um, uh, about me, you know, and, and it's very generous of you. Uh, uh, I, I I can't say anymore. I, I think that's uh, I think that's fantastic, and I think you're fantastic. And I love realize and 
you know, I think that the world is very fortunate and that, that you're out there and you're doing your thing. And I think, um, you know, that, that Tao is very lucky that you're going to be involved with us. And I think I'm very lucky that I get to work with you. And, um, I, I just, I, I, I said it in the teaser, um, that I threw out on LinkedIn that I think we'll, we're going to, uh, build some uh, amazing things together. And I look forward to that. My heart is bursting and I appreciate being seen and, um, I appreciate being appreciated. And likewise, I uh, I know we're going to not only build some amazing things together, but I think as humans, we'll have a chance to help each other, um, you know, be our best selves. And I think that's really special. Well, Avery, you were wonderful. I enjoyed having you as a guest. I hope it was a good experience for you. And yeah. uh Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so wonderful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share um, what I'm so passionate about with the world. And, uh, and yeah, and thank you for such wonderful questions. And yeah, thanks. I just, I think you're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking very soon. So, I'll, okay. We'll talk to you soon, Avery. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.